0: Gonna, we we're not going to pass you again. Loser! Yes, sir. Let's
1: go, man!
0: Yes, sir. Dude, I, I'm I'm telling you, we've been excited about this. I I thought we lost you when we moved up. And
1: I'm excited to get
0: you here. We're excited to get you here. we got a heck of a foundation growing, man. It's going to be fun Do me? Yes, sir. I can't wait. All gas, brother. Let's roll, man. Hey, I'm...
1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Turn the Jets podcast. I'm your host, Will Parkinson, at WillPod11 on Twitter and Instagram. Turn on the Jets on Facebook. Joined by a very special guest, nine-year NFL veteran, um, a a resident New Yorker, Mike DeVito. How are you doing today, Mike?
0: Hey, well, thanks for having me on the podcast, man. It's great to be here. Doing well.
1: Yeah, you no, know, we're excited. We're excited to have you on. Um, bring back some, you know, good vibes and positive energy from the, you know, a decade later, he kind of yes. look back of, uh, you know, the fun times. And it feels like a different energy around the team right now. Obviously, we just got out of draft weekend. And, um, you know, obviously the Jets, you know, <laughs> are known for, uh, you know, winning the Super Bowl during the draft and stuff like that. But this year it felt a little bit different. What was kind of your reaction coming out of the draft? Did you feel like, as excited as everybody else, that you know, there's some good energy, or is it? Are we getting a little too excited?
0: You know, I'm always hesitant for everybody when it comes to draft picks because you just you just never know, right? I mean, you never know what you're going to get. Um, I understand the the excitement for getting Wilson, uh, obviously quarterback. When you when you get rid of Sam, a quarterback is is the need, and and like we like all the time in the NFL. I mean, in order for a team to be successful, you got to have a stud quarterback. And if you can get that quarterback young, uh, you're in good shape for a long time. So uh, I get why there's uh, excitement there. There's promise there. Um, And and I think it was a good pick. I think, I I think I certainly think it was a good pick. Um, uh, But again, it's just, sometimes it's just hard to tell exactly what you're going to get with a draft. So, um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm optimistic. I'm not overly optimistic. and uh, but I think they did a good job. I, I think you're right. You you can't look at it like you're winning the Super Bowl in, in April, uh, but you can't evaluate it, you know, based on, you know, how, how did they do? Did they get the positions of need? Uh, did they take care of, what, you know, what the Jets needed going into 2021? And, and I, I think they did. I certainly think they did. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with
1: it. Now, in terms of, obviously, you know, the draft and free agency, the Jets were able to add on both sides of the ball. It obviously went heavy offense in the draft, but obviously defensively it felt like, they address the needs, especially Carl Lawson as that edge rusher um, and free agency and things like that. The biggest move of the offseason, in my opinion, was Robert Sala. I think that's more important than any player. I think coaching the NFL is, I think sometimes people forget how important it is and you can test this more than anybody, but you can have the best roster in football, but if you don't have the right coach and the right leadership and culture around, it's just not going to, it's not going to fly. So um, what were your impressions of the Jets going a defensive head coach when I know you've even talked about this. So, you know, maybe the enemy was a guy they should have looked at and things like that. You know, the offense is lacking. But um, what were your thoughts? They went defense and then as Sal as a whole, how did how did you kind of receive that move? And also, what would it, do you think it would be like playing for a guy like that?
0: Yeah, great questions. So, you know, I don't get overly excited about the draft, but I certainly get excited about them signing Sal. I mean, that what a huge signing for the Jets. I mean, there's so many reasons to be excited about this new head coach. And w- one of them is it just takes a special type of person to coach and to play in New York, right? To, to coach and to play for the Jets takes a special kind of person. It takes toughness. It takes grit. It takes swagger. It takes that Rex Ryan um, style of, uh, of charisma. Uh, and, and he has all that. He brings the toughness. And the one thing, one of the things that, you know, outside of that, that I really loved was an interview that he did right at the beginning um, uh, of his tenure, where he said, uh, he said, look, I know as a coach, I'm, I'm good. And, I, and I, I believe in myself. And, I, and you know as all coaches, we, you know, that's how we got here. We have confidence. Um, but he said, I'm not overly confident to the point where I know I don't have weaknesses and I need help in certain areas. And he said, so I'm going to build a coaching staff. That covers for my weaknesses. Now, when you have somebody like that that's that can recognize and have that humility and know they don't know it all, and so they need to surround themselves with people that can help them. That is leadership. That is leadership 101, that is gold standard leadership. So you couple his toughness with his humility and then forget it. And then the defensive mindset, I mean, I couldn't be more happy with Saul as as, as the Jets head coach. Um, I think. This is something for, for Jets fans to be incredibly optimistic about the future of the Jets. You know the philosophy he's going to bring in, one of toughness, one of hard work, that lunch pail mentality, that stuff that fits right in in New York. Um, guys are going to want to play for him. He's the kind of coach that, you know, there's no, there's no BS. You know you know who what you're getting. Uh, you want to go out there and work hard for him because you know he's working hard for you um it just all the elements all the elements all the ingredients to the to the recipe are there uh when you think about the coaching staff and the philosophy um that that he brings into the New York Jets facility and so this is something I'm incredibly optimistic about
1: I'm so glad you brought that up I actually had this conversation at dinner last night because we're just talking about elements of leadership and how you know different people lead in different ways and some people are more you know, that coach that like mentor, they lead by example, they lead with their words, their everyone's got a different style, but something that's so important, in my opinion, as being a is being good leaders that as you could be amazing at everything, but the, everyone has weaknesses. And if you don't recognize those, it's kind of where you get crushed, right? Or like, I think some of that, you know, we, obviously Adam Gase had his own weaknesses, but not recognizing those or being able to kind of address those weaknesses is where you kind of get crushed, especially in the NFL. Um, even yeah. you know, Rex knew he didn't know offense the way he wanted to. And People got upset about that, but at least he understood, like, I'm not – I can't contribute on this side of the ball. And he was, like, able to leave other people to do that job, which that's – in my opinion, that's okay. Like, Sal is not claiming to be a QB whisperer. He's claiming that I'm going to get these guys ready to play, and I need my coaching staff to lift, you know, lift these guys up. So, I'm really – I'm happy you brought that up.
0: Oh, you hit the nail on the head. And it's – like you said, it's hard to do in the NFL. It's very hard for players and coaches to admit they have weaknesses because – uh, it doesn't take much to lose your job, right? It doesn't take much to lose your position, and so uh, I get that. I understand that. Um, but but again, to have the confidence to know, yeah, I'm going to come in here and kick ass, and I'm going to do a good job. Uh, but like you said, but I, I know where I where where I fall short, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna surround myself with guys that can cover me and make sure that these guys are ready to play on Sunday at the highest level. Uh, just like you said, just like with Rex with the offense. I mean, he owned it, and he did the, his best he could to bring in people to to cover for his weaknesses. That's huge. And the guys see that. The guys see that humility, the guys see his honesty, and that breeds more honesty around the locker room and the facility. And that can only lead to good things. So, uh, so yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head and, and, and that was really a, uh, an encouraging moment when I heard him give that interview and, and he kind of laid out that philosophy.
1: I was curious, um, kind of in line with that, obviously, you know, this has now changed. This is the first off season in my recent memory where the ownership trip like this reporting structure has changed now where Sala and Sala's kind of lockstep with Douglas. And I know they're all on the same deal. And it's kind of cool that Douglas Wilson and, and Sala are all pretty much in the same time track. So it lines up, but obviously Sala now reports into Douglas who reports into, you know, reports all the way up the ladder. Do you think that was something that was maybe overblown of how big of a deal that was? Or do you think that's important to kind of have that clear reporting structure where you think that's more so important?
0: Yeah, well, I think when you look at just organizations across the board, right, the military, you know, businesses, all that stuff, if there's not a hierarchy, a clear sort of hierarchy of leadership, um, that, that's when you get problems, when people don't know their role, when people don't know who's important to who or how much say one person has, That's that always leads to problems, and we saw it. But. Uh, but I, but you're right. Now you know the the leadership is in place. Everybody knows their role. Everybody's picked their guy. Right? This is their guy. This is the guy they brought in. Um, so you don't have any of that. Well, that wasn't my guy. Uh, I think from the quarterback to the head coach to the GM, uh, everything is in line. And so yeah, no, I think that that's a good point. That's something that that often gets overlooked. Uh, but but you know when you go when you that that aside too, Douglas has the same sort of mentality that's all had, right you you have this toughness and this leadership. like if i was going to go get in a street fight i would pick those two guys but if, if you asked me to pick a gm uh head coach combo in the nfl to get in a street fight with you know be on my team i'm picking the jets guys you know what i mean so like it's just not only is there a, you know the leadership and structure there but the philosophy is is there right it, 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 the same philosophy all the way up you know Douglas's is tough you know Saul's stuff you know that that's going to run down Uh, into the philosophy of the team. And and, and that's going to be sort of the foundation of that locker room. So, so yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And it's, I'm glad to see that they got that fixed. It's something that you think, that you think that the organizations would never let happen, let that sort of um, ambiguity with the leadership go on because it just, it's never good when that's the case. There's never been a case where it's like, oh, that worked out well, you know? So I'm glad they got that fixed and it got that leadership in place.
1: It's even you look at the ownership structure over the last couple of years with Woody being overseas. And then there's a interim owner who's a brother, but he's trying to make his own. It's just, it's nice to feel like there's some um, it's like much more simple now. And I know that usually people, Oh, it's simple. It's not that exciting. No, it's good to just that stuff. You shouldn't have to talk about that stuff. That should be something that goes, you know, that goes hand in hand with just winning. But I would have curious, I was curious, you know, for you, obviously you're around, you're on the team when, you know, they've been the most successful they've been um, you know, a long time and, um how quickly do you think you can change a culture from my perspective i know um i you know i've walked into teams that the culture was not good and it was a losing mentality and we were able to turn it around but it took time and it took that initial like proving on the field not just talking about it like you had to go and win a game that you weren't supposed to win to get people to buy in do you think it's all about just winning games or do you think sal and douglas can change that culture from something that felt very toxic the last probably most of the decade but especially the last three to four years, like how quickly can you change a culture? Is that over time? You
0: know, well, I was thinking about this because I've, I've seen my experience and what I've seen in the NFL with other teams has been different. You, you see, I've seen other teams who have really struggled to buy into the philosophy of the head coach. The two times that it happened with, with me was, you know, when, when Rex came in New York in 2009 and then Andy Reed in 2013 with the chiefs and, uh, again, it goes to, it speaks to the leadership of of those two coaches, but it was like, it was instant. I mean, when, when they came in, they, it was day one, they laid out, this is what it's going to be like. This is what it means to play like a jet. This is what it means to play like a chief. And we're going to live up to these standards. And this is the philosophy that's expected. This is the, this is sort of what is expected of you as a player. Um, And this is how we're going to win games. Uh, And if you don't live up to it, then you're going to be out of here. And With Rex Ryan and Andy Reid, it was just instant. You knew those guys knew how to win, that they knew what they were talking about, uh, that they cared about you, that they knew how to win. And so it was an easy easy sell. Um, One thing that both coaches did that I think helped that was they brought coaches and players from the previous places that they had been who were familiar with their structure, familiar with their offense and defensive strategies, familiar with all that, to help ease the transition, um, and so that that was beneficial. Uh, you would probably know better than I have. Well, I'm not sure. I, I, you know, obviously they drafted their own guys, but I'm not sure Saul's brought in his own. he's probably he's brought in his own coaching staff, but I don't know if he has many players from San Fran to come with him, right?
1: Yeah, no, I feel like uh, it has been rumored to Sherman, and they're rumored to a couple different dvs and guys like that but they haven't really brought in tevin coleman's one guy that comes to mind from an offensive perspective in a running back room but yeah they haven't really added they've added system guys that have played in the system before but not specifically in san francisco
0: yeah so that's one. So okay so that's a good point yeah that that's that's one sort of if there's any sort of cause for concern here or, or worry about guys buying in it's it's that right i mean it's it's that 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 really helped you know so when rex came he brought in Marquise douglas he brought bart scott he brought jimmy leonard at each position he brought a guy that knew that position from the way that you know from the point of view of how rex wanted that that position played and those those players took a leadership role right away so they really helped ease the transition at least as it relates to sort of learning the playbook right so if you have good people in the locker room, they're going to buy into sort of, they're going to buy into the philosophy, right? They're going to buy into whatever Saul's preached as far as this is what it means to be a jet. They'll buy into that. I guess now that I think about it more, when it comes down to the technical details of what he's trying to get accomplished, specifically on defense, it helps to have those guys in place that already know that so that everybody isn't learning from, from ground zero. You can have, uh, you can have some guys who have been there who can teach the, the the little details. But again, if you have, which they do, if you have bright players on the roster, guys that have brought in the, the, the overall philosophy of the team um, that, that shouldn't be a big, that that shouldn't be a big problem. So, so, but yeah, no, but I mean, there are, there are a lot of coaches who you see come into the NFL and these, these tend to be guys I think who are more ego guys that you can see right away. I feel like, college coaches coming into the NFL always have this problem uh where the transition is rocky right where the transition is rocky and uh and you can tell things aren't aren't hitting the way they they should whereas when you have like guys like Andy Reid Rex Ryan Saul who's who's established who knows what you know knows what the NFL's about knows what the guys are like um i think you know more times than not they'll be able to get that that philosophy in place and going right away and it should be a smooth transition i think
1: yeah, no, in terms of – I know you mentioned something there that was pretty interesting in terms of, obviously, the scheme change and things like that. Something I noticed, the Jets have played been a 3-4 base team for a long time. Um, at least, you know, mo- most of my life I feel like they've been a 3-4 team. And um, this is going to be the first time in a long time they're going to that 4-3 kind of base set and be able to kind of – I think it might actually benefit the roster more so than um, kind of – felt like guys were playing a little out of position the last couple of years, specifically, like, I feel like he was more of a four-three D tackle and can play three tech and and like kind of use his athleticism there as opposed to trying to eat up blocks and even a guy of like Carl Lawson doesn't fit as a stand-up edge to me. He feels like he needs to be hand in the dirt. How do you see that kind of all playing out? Because the defensive line feels like it's a strong suit, um, you know, of the team. Felt like on I mean, your guys, you know, the 09 2010 team. I feel like D line, but not necessarily just the line, but the the secondary and the linebacking core are all really strong. And this team kind of feels like it's really built up front. The linebacking depends on Mosley, and then the the secondary is more safety-driven. How do you see that 4-3 scheme kind of adapting with some of the guys in the roster, specifically Q, I feel like, who should shine kind of where he played at Alabama?
0: Yeah, well, yeah, no, that's a good point. And and I feel like the more difficult transition is going from a 4-3 to a 3-4. Right, So when you go, when you tell a guy, just put your hand in the dirt and go 100 miles an hour straight ahead, that, that's not, a, you know, that's, okay, we got that. We've been doing that since, you know, since Pop Warner. The harder transition is telling a guy, okay, now you need the two gap, you know, you need to play it slow, you need to hold this guy up so he doesn't get to the backer. Th- those are techniques that are they're that usually more foreign to, to players. So um, the transition from a 3-4 to a 4-3, especially like you said, with Q and the guys up front, And a lot of faster guys and explosive guys, faster guys on the back end. Uh, I think that that shouldn't be a problem uh, whatsoever. Obviously towards the back end of the draft, they ended up, they added a lot of young defensive players. Uh, Looks like more speedy guys, right? You got some cornerbacks, got some linebackers. Um, So you're you're looking to see how those guys fit into the scheme. Mosley, he's more of a bigger body guy, but he's, he's, if he comes back healthy and then the way he, you know, the way he played in Baltimore, I mean, I think he's a guy that can easily fit into a four three scre- scheme and get it done and be productive. I mean, he's just a great ball player. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, 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 the talent is it, If you look at sort of how it's balanced, is certainly front. And so here I get what you're saying, right? If you're, if your talent is up front, do you really want to change things up up there uh, uh, where you know, maybe these guys are now in positions that they're not used to playing. I don't think that'll be the case. I think even in a three four system, there are a lot of times that you're playing four three style, you know, third down stuff, you're playing four three style stuff. So the techniques aren't that foreign. I think it won't be that big of a change. Uh, and again, defense, you know, the, the beauty about defense is a lot of times you can you can cover a multitude of sins just by going out there and playing a million miles an hour, you know, uh, and you got guys that you've seen. These past couple of years, even through all the difficult times that the Jets have had, the one thing that you notice is they play hard on defense. Man, they get after it. They get off the football. They're knocking guys back. Um, uh, they're explosive, and so I think that this this four three will be will fit them well. Um, again, they added some 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 pieces with the draft to fit right in there. Hopefully, get Mosley and those guys back. But I think you and and your playmakers up front will will will, will thrive in this defense.
1: You know, it's interesting you said that. Just I think Mosley's such a unicorn because the only time we've seen him play in, in green and white, he was incredible. Yeah. I get I'm not gonna count the New England game. He obviously wasn't healthy, but it just it's so frustrating. But it's also kind of that excitement of if this guy can even be close to what he was in Baltimore or that Buffalo game, he's you know, he's dropping into coverage running, you know, foot step for step with John yeah. Brown and it's a cross team. Like it's just like you hope that stuff is is still there because. I don't know. I mean, I've missed a season from injury and that's a whole nother story, but it felt like it took a good three weeks of camp to even get up to speed. And I, I hope with some of the virtual offseason stuff, and we've already seen a couple of guys get hurt. I just wanted to, I hope that he's going to be able to get enough reps during camp to feel good. Um, feel good week one, because I'm sure you've gone through in your career too. It's the less and less there's, you get hit in camp, the harder game days are. And I think people don't, if you haven't played football Maybe you don't understand it, but especially at the NFL level, I just feel like we assume, oh, they didn't practice this week. They're fine. Like, you need reps. You need mental reps to see the speed of the game is so fast, and there's people that are 35 years old having – have 25 years of reps versus the guys 21 just getting started, not practicing. It's tough.
0: Yeah, so, no, yeah. you're exactly right. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of – it's almost paradoxical, right? Like, you think, oh, you take time off, you'll be better ready for the season. But it just – I see time and time again that that's not the case. I mean, especially – training camp and and like you said missing a whole you know this was two years for mosley right because he sat out and yeah that's that's a long time to be sitting now i have seen guys i think richie incognito comes to mind who have taken time off and actually come back and excel right so uh there there are ways and obviously training is advanced and, and what you can do off the field now is really. Uh, gotten to the point where you can really you can really be productive off the field. Obviously, you can't mimic Sundays, uh, but you can do a lot of stuff. And I, again, Incognito is a guy who takes a year off and comes back, and he's you know the same and even better than he was before. So you hope in Mosley's case that that's what we're going to get, right? A guy that comes right back and fits right back into what he was doing. Now, playing offensive line and playing you know your your primary position on defense at linebacker are two obviously two different things. Um, but he's still somewhat young in his career. Uh, again, even if he's at 80% of what he was, he's still one of the best linebackers in the game. And so I hope that the Jets will be patient with him uh, and not make any, you know, <laughs> rash decisions, but but watch him in OTA. Are they, are they doing MTAs this year?
1: Yeah, they like are, but some of the, like right now, there's like a, a, a thing, there's like a labor discussion with the union because they want, they think people could just do the, all this stuff remote. For OTA, uh-huh. so like they're doing rookie OTAs in person, right. and then everything else is like remote as of now. Which I think, again, is a good thing in some senses. It keeps your body, you know, a little fresher, and it keeps, right. you know, all that. But I also think, I mean, maybe it's being naive, but I, I do think being in person, being around the guys, is just it, that culture to be start building. We talked about it before, but especially I was looking at the core of their their offense. Most guys are 21 or 22 years old, which yeah. is great, but also like barely have taken NFL snaps, so yeah. I, I, yeah. I'd like to see that culture keep building a little bit more in person. Well, but
0: well, yeah, and and you think about it too. I mean, if I remember it correctly, when you have a new coach come in, at least when I did in the NFL, you had two extra weeks in the off season, um, uh, because you, you recognize that now it, it takes it takes longer to get everything implemented, and get the playbooks in place, and this this the philosophies and the strategies and all that stuff going. And you said right that the team to gel, especially a young team. So, uh, so yeah, you hope that gets worked out because that, that is something that's, you know, you, if you're a jets player, you want to get in there and get going, you know, and I know even being a veteran guy, how the OTAs can suck, right? I mean, I I get it, but new coach, new system, new philosophy, you want to get in there and figure that out. You don't want to be coming in with, you know, whatever it is, 21 days, 28 days till the first game and having just done zoom calls, you know, I mean, you want to get out there Get on the field, especially a guy like Mosley. We're talking about with Mosley. You want to get out there, get running around. Uh, that's the perfect way to transition back into it. I mean, you get mostly if he gets started in training camp. He's going to have what uh, two or three days, and then be in pads. You know, like at least OTAs gives him time to get back on the field, get running on the turf, get used to playing at full speed, even if you're not hitting. Um, so yes, yeah, so you would hope that, they, that the Jets, get some sort of some version of that this offseason. Um uh because that could be a cause for concern going into the regular season, just you know, not being able to do this stuff at full speed, uh, or, or get around the coaches, get in the meeting rooms. Um, and again, I get it, you got you gotta be safe, you gotta be careful. But uh if if it is if you are able to do it and teams have shown that they are able to do it, I think for the Jets that's gotta be a priority to get in there and get working.
1: Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. and uh, well, you know, obviously we'll see what happens, but want to transition to some, um, you know, some of your career and some of the teams you were on specifically in New York. And then obviously in Kansas City, you guys were successful as well. But, um, you know, you come into the league of seven, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and, um, you know, oh, it's an interesting year from a Jets perspective. I think it's something that I think people forget about kind of started that mini run that like three year period, four year period, I guess, where you guys were, you know, I would say, as successful as it kind of gets other than winning the Super Bowl, right? So how chaotic was that first year or that, you know, 2008 year? But how did you guys know you were, like, building something there? Or was it, oh, it's Brett Farr, It's like, Nanji's going to go. And, like, how did that kind of all work out in 08 leading into 09, 2010?
0: Yeah. So in 08, anything was going to be better than 07, right? I mean, so we went 4-12, and 12 and I, I just remember thinking, geez, I could work at – Wendy's and put in these hours and make the same amount of money with less stress than this. I mean, geez, I'm crow. That was just, that was such a difficult year. So anything was going to be a positive going into 2008. Um, but yeah, bringing Brett Favre in was huge. Obviously I I love Chad Pennington. So I would, I was sad to see us lose him, but I remember being in the, we, we were playing the Browns in the preseason and uh, that we had just signed Favre. And so Favre had flown into to, uh, Chicago or no, uh, to Cleveland. And I remember he walked in the locker room. And it was the first time I've seen just sort of all these NFL players totally starstruck. Like it was like, wow, that's Brett Favre, you know? Um, and I remember, I don't know if, I think that was our first preseason game. And I remember that was a powerful moment because it was like, wow, Brett Favre is on our team. This is, this is something special. And then obviously, Coach Mangini, Mike Tannenbaum added a ton of talent onto that roster. I mean, we were stacked, and you're right. That's that's really what propelled us into the 2009-2010 runs uh, was that foundation, that roster that they built. But yeah, no, I mean, it was a it was a hectic year, ups and downs, and obviously we put too much on Favre. I mean, we just thought that Favre could could do it all with his arm the whole time, and he just wasn't at a place in his career where he could do that. I think if we would have if we would have leaned more on sort of running the football and then using, using far, uh when need be, uh, we would have been much more successful, but, but you're right. But that built the foundation for those years in 2009, 2010, where we just took off. Um, uh, and so that was a lot of fun. I mean, when I think back my career and, you know, I scanned the nine years, the 2009, 2010, I mean, there was just nothing like it. There was nothing like it. And I had some really fun times in Kansas city. I mean, uh, you know, the my first year we went nine and oh to start the season, went to the playoffs that year. Uh, my third year we started one and five and then won 11 games in a row. You know, 10 games, then in the first you know, the first game in the playoffs that they had won in forever. Uh, and so we were, you know, the, the beginning sort of phases of what Kansas City's doing now. I got to see sort of the grassroots of that. But 2009, 2010, going to back to back AFC championship games. Uh, beating New England in New England, talking all that crap. I mean, oh, just, well, going to the facility was so much fun. It was so much fun uh, being around those coaches, being around those guys. I think of guys like Jason Taylor, uh, LT, Bart, Damian Woody. I mean, just incredible players, incredible people, the coaching staff, Mike Pettin, Rex Ryan, um, Oh man, it was just, it was, it was so much fun. So uh, I really look back on my, my time in the NFL and, and really thank God for those, those two years, especially. Um, uh, Cause it's, it's hard to get, it's hard to, it's hard, it's hard to do that. Obviously, we fell short of the goal those years, but just to have those opportunities, plays in those big games was, and for my family to get to come and see that and growing up a Jets fan, right? So growing up a Jets fan, being, bleeding the green and white since I was, since I could remember and getting to be a part of those teams that sort of got the Jets back on the map was, uh was really a blessing. So yeah, it was, it was, those were fun years.
1: It's funny to look back at some of those years, I guess, and it's a way that some of the injuries that kind of happened throughout the year, especially 2010, I feel like people maybe forget about like a Chris Jenkins or Damian Woody, both respectively getting hurt and kind of quite frankly, ending probably both of their careers prematurely. Like I mean, I think I'm pretty sure Damian Woody retired post Achilles, and I'm pretty sure Chris Jenkins tried to come back one more time and just kind of failed. But I feel like those were two key guys that I was looking through some of the stuff the other day of just kind of breaking down some of the drafts and, you know, where the Jets added pieces in off seasons and how this year and next year they could, you know, do similar things. And it's crazy how good Chris Jenkins was in 08, and then 09, 2010, I think you got her back-to-back years. And it's it's so frustrating to look at or look at, like, a Damian Woody and go through the playoffs, go right into the playoffs, and it's like you're starting right tackle who's a stud is now hurt. It just, it's it's frustrating because I think – I'm sure for you it's 25 times more frustrating. But even the Pittsburgh game or the Indy game, obviously, kind of opposite games. One started really well and didn't end well. The other started poorly and ended as almost as well as it could have. But do the, you think those injuries – played as big of a part or am i like kind of giving them too much credit
0: no no those played a huge role um specifically because when jenkins gets hurt now you got me you know what i mean now you got the the first and second down sort of plug them in when we need a we need a run stop guy as your full-time guy and so you're right so take the indie game right i mean what would it have been like to have jenkins out there uh, against a weak offensive line with his explosiveness, his ability to get off the football. So replace me who's two gap and third down plays and, and put Chris Jenkins in there. Yeah. It's a, it's a totally different deal. Um, obviously a right tackle is as incredible as Damian Woody is. You can, you can make up for that. And we did, you know, we, we plugged in there and you can, you can do things to help there. Um, I don't think I was a detriment. I think I, I think I still added value, but I couldn't add the value as a, you know, interior explosive pass rusher, just absolutely disruptive guy that that Jenkins was. I, I couldn't do that. I just didn't have that ability. And, and Nick Mangold, somebody asked on Twitter recently, you know, if you could, if you could have, if you could go back and change it so that one guy never got injured. You know, who would that be? You know, what, who would you like to see? And he wrote Chris Jenkins. And I, I think he's totally right. I think you have a healthy Chris Jenkins in 2009, 2010. Oh boy, watch out. I mean, look at what he did in 2008 as a two gapping nose, right? Like a two gapping nose with a wide base and sort of not exploding off the football, taking, I mean, he made the Pro Bowl. Now you put him in a three point stance and tell him to go 100 miles up. I mean, it was it wasn't until what week five or week six in two thousand nine where he got hurt. So we did we did get to see him do things like that. I saw him throw Logan Mankins with a club move once. That was like now Logan Mankins, he'll go to the Hall of Fame. Jenkins hit him with a club move. He threw him like he was like he was a high school kid. I mean, it was just like so, yeah. I mean, I think no, I think you're totally right. I think looking at if you have a healthy Woody and a healthy Jenkins in those two years. I think you're right. I think you you could easily see us over the hump and into the Super Bowl both those years, especially Indy in 2009. I, yeah. I mean, they can't stop Chris Jenkins at nose tackle. No, uh, I, 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 can't, I couldn't
1: believe how – I don't want to say how hot of a start you guys got off to in that game, but I felt like there was this aura, and it felt like kind of a cool thing you guys slayed to. Like, I, whatever, I don't want to disrespect Phil Rivers, but Phil Rivers' playoff resume – I wasn't surprised you guys were able to go in there and kind of mentally yeah. outwill the Chargers because it's just something. It's like watching the Yankees play the Twins. It's they're always really good in the regular season, exactly. and it just whatever. It's, I'm not being. It's, no, it's but just that's the what truth. It is, right? Yeah, it's just the truth, and you it's you've seen it over the last 15 years. So, but to watch to go into Indy and beat Peyton in 2010 and Brady in one playoffs, and then you know almost beat three of the probably six best from their generation quarterbacks and and in one season all on the road is just I don't think people realize how difficult it is to overcome that level of a quarterback and it's not even a disrespect to Mark Mark played re- I thought really well throughout the both playoff runs yeah. but you know Peyton and Tom are pretty universally like one and two or one and three all time yeah. and I beat them in one post postseason on the road after especially after that week I don't know what was week 10 or 11 Monday night game which I'm kind of happy happened, and I'm sure you're even happier because yeah. I felt like if you guys beat them then, or like it's a really close game. I don't know if you oh. beat them, yeah, like in that playoff game.
0: Yeah, no, totally. That that I know, that one of those weird things that was really important to happen, right? I mean, if there was ever a good forty-two to three loss, it was that one. But you're, but yeah, that's exactly right. And when I when I think back to those years, and Rex said this in 2011, and we were never able to get it done, obviously. But he said, "Look, we we gotta we gotta either." play a playoff game at home or get the first round by because three weeks on the road in the playoffs is just, it's so incredibly difficult. Um, I think of, you know, who was a team recently was when the Titans played the chiefs in the AFC playoff in the AFC championship game. I knew because the Titans had were built like we were built with the jets. And I knew, I bet you they come out. And they're not going to be able to have gas for the whole game because they had traveled. I, I believe they had traveled all postseason. When you travel on the road all postseason, playing against the best teams in the NFL, uh, three games in a row is just—it's—it's it's hard. I remember especially that Pittsburgh game in 2010. We—I could not get my body back to to healthy. I was trying everything, and just every day I just felt totally beat up and and wrecked, and so um Now this was before you know, this was before the new rules, so that that you know that helps things obviously when you don't have those those crazy hard training camps and things like that. Uh, but still, I mean, it is really hard to go three playoff games in a row, and I think that that was our detriment those years. The same thing with Indy in the AFC Championship game. I just remember towards the end of the game we just petered out. We just couldn't get it. We we couldn't get that juice flowing to get over the hump, and so uh so yeah no I mean it just it just and that's the the hell of playing in a division with Tom Brady in his prime and then I go to and then I go to Kansas City and I catch the end of Peyton Manning's prime so I got to travel on the road in the playoffs in Kansas City too so uh you know when he was in Denver so so yeah it's tough
1: (laughs) um I was just kind of curious um, that two th- we in 2010. I'll get in some f- more fun questions. I don't want to bring up all bad memories, but the no. 2010 halftime speech against Pittsburgh. What was that locker room like? Because I've been in games where you're down, you know, two three touchdowns at halftime. It's a big rivalry game, and in college it's different, and in high school it's different. Obviously, it's not the AFC title game in yeah. Pittsburgh, and that crowd's going crazy. But what was that halftime speech in that locker room like? Because I can. Im- I feel like it kind of goes two ways and sometimes I think either way is effective. We talked about leadership earlier, but sometimes it's like everyone needs to just like get away from each other and literally have a moment to be like, what are we doing? Or is it like everyone yelling at each other, like, let's effing go. Like we're yeah. not going out like this.
0: Yeah. You know, credit to Mark Sanchez. I mean, it was really Mark. If I, if I Remember sort of vividly him bringing everybody up and saying, look, we're going to dig right out of this hole. Um, we're going to dig of this hole and we're going to get it done. And, you know, and he, he just sort of rallied the troops and it was, you know, Mark, Mark was obviously a good leader, but he was not somebody you think would be the main guy in that situation. And he, he took the reins and, 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 and really got the guys fired up. And I remember going back out after halftime, after sort of Mark rallied the troops and thinking, okay, yeah, no, we, we can do this. We, we can pull out of this. And so credit, yeah, credit to Sanchez. I mean, he was the one that was able to almost get his turnaround and win that game.
1: We'll, we'll get into some more happier or, like, kind of fun memories from your career. Who would you say was the loudest crowd – what was the loudest home crowd Jets-wise? Because Arrowhead's obviously a whole different animal. That place gets yeah. crazy. What was the loudest Jets home crowd you played in front of? And then what was the loudest uh, – most intimidating invo- – not intimidating, but what was the loudest environment – maybe it was a playoff game or even a regular season game opposing, you know, stadium wise that you guys were like, dude, I can't hear a thing.
0: Yeah. So at home, anytime we, with the Jets, anytime we played the Pats what a lot of fun atmosphere that was a- anytime you played New England uh, uh, in New York was just, uh, that was a blast. I mean, from the second you took the bus in, you could tell the feel was different, but the, the fans were fired up and, just the hatred for that team. <laughs> I mean, it just was contagious in that, that stadium. So anytime New England, we played New England at home uh, with the jets was, was a fun crowd. It was a loud crowd. As far as opposing teams, Seattle was just so well. I, I mean, I could not believe how loud Seattle was when we were there in New York in 2012. Jeez. I, I, I don't know how the offense accomplished, I mean, they didn't really accomplish anything if I remember correctly, but it was just, it was, you couldn't hear a thing. I mean, it felt, it really felt like an earthquake. I don't know how they've designed that stadium or what they did, but whoever did it, did it perfectly because it, when you talk about the 12th man there, there, it is so true there. I mean, it just, it's just so, so loud and it's so forceful um, I mean, they're in arrowhead are very similar in those ways.
1: It's funny to, it's funny the way Seattle built their team kind of resembled, especially that early, early Pete Carroll, Ross Sears with the Legion of Boom and stuff was yeah. so resembling of the crowd that I remember watching some games on TV and it's like, you know, they have the monitor of how loud it goes and the whole thing. And I don't even know if I believe half the stuff they're throwing on there, but it was, there was a Monday night game. They're playing the saints and it was like, I'm like, I, there's no way they can hear. Like their, no. their, their silent count doesn't even begin to explain like what's going on. And you have, you know, Bobby Wagner and Cam Chance and Earl Thomas running around ready to take your head off. And on top of it, you can't hear. It's just, I don't know. The one game I was curious that came to mind that obviously didn't go well, but the Baltimore game week one opening MetLife and then that Cowboys game the next year, uh, or I don't know if it was the next year, 2010, I can't remember, but those two games from a fan's perspective felt like were such cool environments because of 911, and then not that nine 11 cool. I'm just saying the environment yeah. around honoring it. And then the Baltimore game opening the stadium, I just remember like the amount of energy coming out of Corland that year in camp was, was something that felt a little different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The first, the, the Baltimore game in 2010 was really fun because you had uh, you had Ray Lewis, you had uh Terrell Suggett, all these guys that had sort of cut their teeth under Rex Ryan now, now playing against Rex and, um, and so that, that was really fun. Yeah, that was, that was a loud crowd too. And it was really both defenses shined in that game, right? So it really was a testament to Rex where it was his old defense and his new defense and the score was 10 to nine or something. You know, I mean, it was, it was a testament to obviously to his brilliance. Um, the 2011, September 11th game, what an incredible, I was so happy. I mean, if there was one game that I could win in my career I would, I would trade all the other ones to make sure we won that one. Uh, That was so good to be able to come back and win that game uh, on the 10th anniversary of September 11th at home against Dallas. Uh, That was really, really special. That was really special. And so, yeah, those, you're right. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, those were two really fun games as well.
1: I'm pretty excited this year um, in a similar vein. It's me. I think it's the 20th year anniversary and I think the Yankees play the Mets. Um, I'm pretty sure this year for it to honor. It. And then the Jets and Giants, I'm pretty sure either we're both home or the Jets are at home this year to honor, which is going be pretty cool. I don't know who they're going to play or what week it'll be based on the new 17-game schedule, which based on the way you're talking about having to go on the road three times, I'm not sure how great the players are feeling about <laughs> like adding oh. an extra game. Uh, seems like – I mean, at least they took a preseason game away, but I also feel like your body is just <laughs> hot. <laughs> all the guys that
0: are going to play in the regular season – probably play, you know, the equivalent of, uh, you know, one half of actual football in the, in the preseason. And, and then the the veterans will tell you, I mean, preseason games are not regular season games. They're just not, I mean, the intensity isn't there. Uh, So yeah, taking one away to give one regular season game. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's going to be that, that helpful when it comes to, you know, overall long-term health and stuff. Did, did, did they give them an extra bye week or they just did they just – that no, they didn't give them no. an extra bye week. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. So, uh, that's tough. That's yeah, tough. It's going to be, a,
1: it's gonna be interesting on some of the rookies too. I think it will be something interesting to watch because they're going – you're going from a COVID year where not even everyone played 12 games, a normal college season, then into a full stadium full of 17-game season. I'm interested. I mean, like I hope some of these rookies are able to hold up, but I, I think it'll that will be a huge um, – It'll be good to have younger players on the Jets roster being such a young roster but also to be to the detriment because you're not really sure how to kind of prep your body for really say 20 weeks of 20 weeks of games especially as a young guy you're trying to get reps so I'm interested yeah, to see how that plays out
0: and that rookie wall is a real thing I mean you see it every year the rookies hit that they hit that wall 10 11 games into the season and it's something that they need to overcome. And so now you add an extra game into this, to the, to the regular season. I mean, yeah, this will be interesting to see how it plays out. Obviously uh, everybody's making more money. So that that's good. And I, at the end of the day, I, you know, that's what everybody wants, but uh you really have to see how this plays out with guys, health wise, longevity, things like that. And does taking away the preseason does taking away the practice reps and the pads and all that stuff and like you and i were talking about earlier sort of the paradox of those things actually being really important to uh long-term health in the season uh you know we'll see how this plays out but um but yeah i mean obviously from a fan's perspective it's a good thing more more football is good and so now watching the game from the outside i'm excited to see 17 games but you do worry about the overall health of the players, especially all the trends um, after the new CBA and how you know thinking that taking away those practices and those those reps and training camp were going to help injuries, and I, I don't think that that's been the case. And so, um, so you hope adding this other game doesn't you know add more more to to players' uh, long term health problems.
1: Yeah, I feel like something that – I guess a long-term, a muscle pull or a muscle tear is better off than a concussion and things like that, and I think those are really important, and I don't want to be uh, tone deaf to it, but also the amount of – I mean, I don't know if it was just the Jets, you know, overall last year, and a lot of teams in San Francisco came in and all of the entire roster got hurt, but I felt like last year, everybody had a torn hamstring. Everybody was pulled groin, pulled shoulder, pulled – so I'm hoping that's not the case, but wanted to get your thoughts on something, and you don't have to give one specific player – but who is somebody or a couple guys, you know, throughout your career, we'll start with the Jets, but that you would just, you would even watch them practice that, you know, or during a game or you're watching film on, you know, on Mondays so you're like, this dude is ridiculous. Like, I don't, like, I don't know how they're able to do some of the things they're doing. I assume Revis and Chris Jenkins will be guys, but I'm sure there's other guys that fans maybe didn't appreciate how quite, how good they were. Cause they might've not gotten the recognition. they deserve. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So they're, there's Rebus and everybody else I mean there's there's your really good players and your good players, your average players and that and then there's Rebus I mean he, what he did was just and I'm not a guy who knows anything about playing cornerback and I'm watching him on the game film thinking I have no idea how he's doing it I have absolutely no idea how he's doing that he is, and people talk about Brady and Manning being the top players and obviously all the Super Bowls and everything they've won I, I've and, 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 uh, and so it's justified, but t- Darrell Revis is the best player I've ever seen play football. Darrell Revis in his prime, I have seen nothing like it. It just was really superhuman. And so, you know, I can lay out a bunch of other guys that are really good players, right? You, you mentioned Chris Jenkins by tam- time in Kansas City, I think of, you know, Eric Berry and Derek Johnson. And I had some really, Tom Bahali, Justin Houston. But again, Darrell Revis in his prime, I've
1: never seen anything like it. <laughs> it's just funny to think about Revis because I think that 2009 team was really good. And I think that having a young quarterback, and I think you guys probably almost accelerated the window maybe a year in advance. And I, I'm not trying to be whatever. Revis, that was the best defensive season. I mean, maybe you argue J.J. Watt or Aaron Donald recently, but that Revis season, the amount of guys, he Hall of Famers that looked like scrubs, running routes again. It's insane. Like, I don't, it's literally insane. You look at that list, like Randy Moss, the top five guy ever. Tio's a top five guy ever. Chad Johnson's one of the better receivers. I've ever, he's the best feed I've ever seen play football. Uh, you know, the list goes on. I'm sure I'm missing somebody, but that was, Steve Smith was on there. Andre John, it was like, and two catches 12 yards and yeah. like uh, in a pit. It's insane. Right, I mean, White, his interception yeah. stats aren't that high. Yeah, dude. Because no one would throw over there. You're no. crazy. It was unbelievable.
0: I mean, we didn't. There were times we didn't even do pass rush. Like we didn't work pass rush during the week because it was just like it didn't matter because they nobody was gonna be able to complete anything anyway on us. So it's like uh, uh, it just was. It, and the things that allowed us to do right. So you you have Revis who's shutting down everybody's number one. You have Cromartie who's shutting down everybody's number two. Now. You don't when you don't need to double number one and number two, we're blitzing everybody. We're blitzing everybody, bringing DBs, we're moving simulated pressures, we're moving everybody right to left and left to right. And there's nothing you can do. There's nothing on offense you can do to stop it because we don't need to commit two guys to your, you know, four guys to your top two or two guys to your top one. Um, we don't even need to, we don't even need to do anything fancy. We can just go man and put Revis on your number one guy. And he's out, he's out of the game. Okay. You know, Megatron out of the game, Randy Moss out of the game, uh, Chad Johnson gone out of the game. I mean, it's just what, how do you, I, I've never seen, again, I've never seen anything like it, The nothing that is the most amazing superhuman stuff I've ever seen on Sundays is what Darrell Revis put out there.
1: It's, it's crazy. It's pretty cool to kind of hear that stuff because even, you know, as, as a fan or at the time, like I'm playing in high school and and I'm just like, this is so cool. But in, you don't, unless you're watching that film on Mondays and you see that, like that skill and you're see, watching the best people to ever put on pads get annihilated. It's just, it's kind of crazy to think about, but I was curious from an offensive guys that you went against. Um, I would imagine, and maybe I'm being biased, but I would imagine some of the hardest matchups, we're in practice going against Fannica, Nick, like all these different guys, Woody, the Brickshaw, like there's are some, you know, Fanica is going to be a Hall of Fame uh, this year, believe. And then or last year, and then, you know, uh, I feel like Nick Mangold probably, you know, eventually should be, you know, get in and stuff. And um, how hard were those matchups or were there other guys that you played against throughout the league that you were like this matchup, like I have to be on my game or else I'm going to get like, I can't, I'm not going to make an impact.
0: Nothing, nothing even close to those, those, uh, offensive lines you mentioned, right? Uh, yeah, those years playing guys during the regular season, you play one, one or two guys, you know, throughout the season that were on that level, right? So you play like a Logan Mankins or a Chris Dealman or somebody who was really good. Um, but yeah, but when you talk about an overall unit, though, when you got, you have Woody, B. Moore, Mangold. Um, Fanica, and then Slosson. after Fannica and DeBrickasha. I mean, there was I was getting and I'm a good run defender. I was getting driven off the ball every nine on seven. I mean, there was just nothing I could do to, 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 to stop those guys. And going out to Kansas City and talking to those guys when I got there. And those guys, you know, Tyson Jackson, those guys are really good run defenders. They were like, Mike, when we played you guys, we had to play against that offensive line that was hell on wheels. They were, they were unbelievable. I mean, so across the league, those guys were respected. Uh, And then you put, you know, LT in the backfield and Sean Green, those downhill runners. Uh, Those are some fun offenses to watch. And uh, like you alluded to, I mean, it was the regular season was easy compared to training camp. We knew once we got out of training camp, it was downhill from there because we had just gone against the best offensive lines that you could, you could muster up.
1: It's funny when you think about that kind of stuff and, um, you know, when you the amount of respect some of these guys garner, you know, across the league and things like that. Um, you know, I remember I tr- I transitioned to tight end halfway through my college career, and I started. I never been part of an inside run period. Um, and for those people who don't know, it's the most electric part of practice that you're going to possibly find. The amount of trash talking and uh, and things like that. And I think people got a small preview of doing like goal line stuff during hard knocks, in Corlitt and Chris Jenkins and tossing the helmet off and getting all fired up. But how? on a scale of like one to 10, how intense were those inside run periods in camp we didn't get to see and who was probably, who was a bigger trash talker, Bart, Chris, or was there someone on offense that kind of gave it right back?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so the the, the Bart and Chris on the same team, uh, that just, I mean, you couldn't match that. You just had to be quiet and let them go. I mean, what else, who's going to, there was no opening to say anything with those two um so yeah those are clearly the best trash talkers i ever played with yeah those inside periods uh those like you said during training camp especially when you got inside run nine on seven i mean you warm up do your individual and then it's nine on seven right i mean that's how you start that's how you start the, the meat of the practice is that really hard hitting you know period um and yeah, just like what I said before, I mean, there was nothing like, even, you know, regular season games didn't compare to the challenge of having to play against those guys during training camp. Um, like you said, Hall of Famer, I mean, all, uh, you said, Nick, I think the Brickshaw deserves to be in there. Um, obviously, Fannick is in there now. I mean, that's that's the left side of the line is, a Hall, is Hall of Famers. I mean, it just, uh, they were incredible. And so, yeah, I'm, I was able to really step up my game and play well during the regular season because I had the opportunity, as, as miserable it was sometimes, to play against those guys during training
1: camp. Yeah, but at least most people didn't see the uh, most people didn't see where you didn't feel great because they saw it on Sundays where you're, you know, ready to kind of, you know, take eat up three blocks and you know, and, or you know, make a play on the ball yourself. Who is we'll kind of finish up we'll finish up here, but um, hardest you feel like you ever hit somebody. I'm sure that everyone has a player through that sticks out, and then maybe your favorite either game or play during a game where you were like that felt that all that work was worth this one play because I felt like I felt awesome hitting this guy or making a play in the backfield.
0: Yeah. The, one of the, my one of my favorite plays was sacking Philip Rivers in, uh, in the uh, playoffs in that divisional game. I had just bull rushed my guy right into him and then was able to wrap him up and throw him down. And that was one of those moments like wow, I just sacked Philip Rivers, you know? That was cool. Um so that was probably one of those moments where it was like, yeah, that was that was worth it. That was that was a lot of fun to get to do that. I uh, also getting to sack Peyton Manning was was fun. I threw Tom Brady down. That, I mean, getting to hit those big name guys and really hit him hard, those those are always good times. The hardest hit I took was was actually I was I was the nail, not the hammer. And that was, uh, Brandon Jacobs in the preseason. Uh, I think it was, I think it was the 2009 preseason when Rex had just gotten there. And, uh, yeah, I think it was 2009. And it was a fourth and short play and I was playing three technique and I knocked my guy back, perfect position. And the giants handed it off to Brandon Jacobs, man. And he just, clock he's
1: big enough he could also play d-line so he
0: could have subbed right in for me right after he got the first down I mean just made me look small and uh yeah that was probably the hardest hit where it was just like everything sort of blacked out and I had to sort of pull it back together you know I mean I had these really tight rubber arm uh uh things on and somehow he managed to knock that clear off of my arm I was like how did that like that's hard for me to pull off, and he hit me so hard that that flew off my body. Um, so that was probably, you know, obviously I'd like to say I was on—I was the one given the hit, but I was—that was the hardest hit I took in the league was was Brandon Jacob. <laughs> uh,
1: that's pretty funny. I mean, he was a big dude. I don't think anyone's oh. gonna uh, anyone's gonna give you any a hard time for that. Um, I guess we'll finish with one final. Was there a wreck story that stands out? I guess it's probably it has to be appropriate for, uh, for all yeah. audiences, but, um, is there a rec story that stands out that, you know, obviously everyone thinks of the, you know, let's go eat a goddamn snack and that's like, got, you know, that obviously if that Twitter was more important back then, I'm sure that would have gone even bigger than it did, but was there a rec story or a moment you were like, this dude's awesome. I mean, I don't, you know, yeah. or this is, this is crazy. Like, I can't believe this guy's my head coach. Like yeah. fire me up. Yeah. You know, it was a really cool moment.
0: So it was, when he came, when Rex came in and we went into the offseason, it was a ton of Baltimore tape, right? He's showing us what Baltimore's doing on defense. He's continuous cut ups. And then every time we'd mess up in practice during OTAs, he'd be like, okay, we got to watch more Baltimore film and we got to get this right. And, and so at the end of OTAs, that that first year, at the end of the practices, he came in and he was acting really mad. He's like, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of frigging putting Baltimore on. We got to do it again. You guys keep messing up. And it was surprising. He's like, well, we've probably been doing well, you know, and and he turned the tape on and it was a highlight tape of us. You know, he's like, this is how you play three technique, right. And it's us doing it, but he's, he's, he's pretending like he's mad, right. And he's pretending like he's correcting us. And it's saying, you got to watch Baltimore do this again, but he's showing us a highlight tape now of us. And, and he, and, you know, he takes us through all this stuff and he's pretending to be mad. And then he just, throws the clicker down. He's like, that's how you got to do it. And he walks out uh, of the room, you know, and all the guys were fired up because it's like, Oh, that was cool. You know, he was, he was saying, okay, you guys got it. You guys are showing that you got it. So I mean, Rex always did stuff like that. He, he was so much fun. I, it was a really a blessing to play for him. Uh, I hope he gets back into the NFL and coaches again, because uh, as a player, he, he's an easy guy to come, come to work for and work hard for every day, just like Saul is. I think, the, I think the Jets have got that, got that back now. And I think that that's huge.
1: Yeah. No, I was going to say, Saul reminds me a lot of the Rex hiring different because obviously Saul is much less brash. He's much more of a kind of, it's not, not soft-spoken. He's not soft-spoken at all, but it's much more of a, a tempered expectation. But even at his first press conference, the, the confidence, I think that comes with a defensive uh, minded head coach that like, you have to be a little arrogant and confident to play defense. It's a position where you could, you know, even the like corner D line, like you're going to lose most battles, or you're going to at least stalemate. You're not getting like it's not expected for you to win all of your time. So you have to have that kind of irrational confidence. Even saw so, was like, we're going to win Super Bowls here, and like, yeah, he yeah, might not have, you know, Rex was like, I'm we're guaranteeing a Super Bowl kind of name it fish, and and that's, but I think you guys fed off that. I think the Jets will feed off of our coach actually believes in us and is willing to tell other people he believes in us not. Oh, I hope we win a game or I hope we do this. Like, no, I want to go beat the best on it. Like, I think that's important. And I don't think that can be understated whether it worked out or not. And maybe in 2011, I know I've heard you talk about it before. You're like, you really thought that you guys thought that team was going to just be awesome. Um, But it didn't matter that your head coach had your back no matter what. And if it was going to be someone's fault, it's his fault, not the quarterback, not, you know, Oh, uh, Bart didn't play well today. Like Bart sucks. No, it's like no, it's my fault. I schemed pro. I, it's on me. I, I think yeah. that's important.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, you you just sort of laid out the recipe for a winning a winning team, a winning coach, and and I mean, yeah, no, it's a that's exactly right. I mean, that, that's what it is. And and uh, the two thousand and eleven season, yeah, we that was on that was on us as players. We we were our leadership just fell to crap, and we we blew a really. A really special opportunity. 2012, I, I, I knew we we didn't have we didn't have the roster to get back, um, but 2011, I thought we did, and, and, and but it was it was on the players, it wasn't on the coaches. Rex did a great job. Uh, so you're right, and, and the Jets got that again now. So here we go, full full steam ahead. You know.
1: Yeah. No. Exactly. But you know, obviously, you know, we really appreciate having. Them. I'm glad we got to, you know talk some positive. Obviously, we, you know, talked a little bit of the negative stuff, but in reality, I think. There's a lot of exciting times and I think it's important that you know people kind of remember that there is a lot of positive out there and like you should try to just build around that good culture and stuff like that and if you're not following Mike on Twitter and DeVito the video 70 I believe on Twitter uh three point stance pod as well if you're not listening to that I, I've I've listened to a couple episodes I think it's super interesting and you'll get more you know <laughs> a lot of the content you know kind of got here plus a lot you know a lot more so you know I I, I really appreciate you uh you know kind of taking the time.
0: Will, it's been an honor, brother. Listen, let's do this again. And when now it's been 10 years. So now the Jets are, I really feel it. We're, we're going back in the right direction. So we come on a little bit later and we'll talk about all the positives <laughs> with this season. Okay,
1: that, that, that works for me.
0: Awesome.